0: My patient is a 43-year-old man. He is a high school science teacher who presented in October 2005 with lower abdominal pain and constipation of two-month duration. At that time, his physician ordered a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis and that revealed the presence of a rectal mass. He was sent to a gastroenterologist where a colonoscopy revealed the presence of a 4-centimeter mass approximately seven to eight centimeters from the dentate line. The biopsy showed poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma with lymphatic invasion and no other abnormalities. At that time, we presented him in our GI tumor board and an endorectal ultrasound revealed the presence of the rectal mass to have invaded through the perirectal fat with multiple enlarged lymph nodes, at least two to three pathologically abnormal. Can you talk a little bit about the man who came in when you saw him and what the discussions were? Yeah, this person, I saw him actually in a second opinion. He is a very healthy 43-year-old man. He came with his wife and actually his 9-year-old daughter. And they had a lot of data. They had absolutely so recent information from ASCO the year before that I actually had to take him to my office, get on the Internet and print some of these articles to show him that I actually know about some of them. He asked a lot of questions about surgery, the type of surgery, about preoperative chemotherapy, adjuvant chemotherapy, bifasuzumab. And it actually took a very long time to talk to him, and he wanted me to present him again in the tumor board, which I did in both the general tumor board and the GI tumor board, and then he came back to make up his mind what to do. And was he verbalizing concerns both about side effects as well as the cancer or more focused on the cancer? He wanted to live. He really wanted to live. He told me this is my nine-year-old daughter. But he was very interested also in his quality of life and preserving his anal finger. No question about it.
1: Dan? Well, certainly this rectal cancer is the multidisciplinary tumor of the day, especially with so many new data coming out and new tools to play with. Certainly this is someone at 7 to 8 centimeters, where there is an issue of sphincter preservation, although I suspect here the most important person in his life is the surgeon. There is no greater body of data than to say that the most numbers you're going to add to your survival is not based on when you get your radiation or when you get your chemotherapy or whether you get bevacizumab, but where are you getting it done, in what hospital, and by what surgeon. And so certainly hospital and surgeon volume is the single most important thing this person needs to address. With the publication of the German trial, we finally have a pre-op versus post-op study that answers a question. It says one thing that I think is missed a lot which is that in the people who were assigned to get post-operative therapy, so who went to surgery first, even though they were studied very carefully with EUS and MRI beforehand, 20% of those people would not have needed post-op treatment because staging typically overstage people. So when you do preoperative therapy, not in this person, if it's a T3N+, plus, you're safe. But on the borderline cases, in 20% of the people in the German trial, they got unnecessary radiation and chemotherapy, and they would have been cured with an LAR alone if that were possible. But one of the things you said was very important, in rectal cancer, there's more than just cure. There's the quality of life issue, and sphincter preservation is very important. So if it's even a question here then I think preoperative therapy is clearly the way to go, and the German study supports that, and you're not worried about having overstaged him with a T3N1 lesion. What you use is a different question. The data here are clearly coming out on a two-weekly basis. The standard of care from the German trial was 5-FU and radiation, which dates back to 1967 at the Mayo Clinic. Clearly, there's time for a change there are multiple trials charlie was involved with one i and another in the ecog and clgb adding oxaliplatin and if you look at the totality of the data of oxaliplatin during radiation the path cr rate if that's an appropriate endpoint which i believe it is in terms of predicting long term outcome is at least twice as high i think it was 26% in the clgb trial is 29% In our non-randomized patients at Penn, we presented data this year. It was in the 30% range.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about that presentation at ASCO?
1: Our presentation from Penn? Basically, what we did is because we had done the ECOG trial, and once we had done it, frankly, our surgeons were so impressed with what they saw in terms of downstaging is they sort of put the oxaliplatin bug in the ear of patients. So when they came to us in the multidisciplinary clinic, they said, are we going to get oxaliplatin? Concurrent with this were the publication of many, many abstracts and manuscripts. In fact, all showing path CR rates that were well above the range you'd expect with 5F radiation, which typically I think was 8% in the German study, can be around 10 to 12% in other trials. And Klaus Rodel, in fact, published these data showing that the downstaging effect is very predictive of long-term outcome. Four year outcome in terms of event free and overall survival. So, I think as an endpoint in and of itself, downstaging is important not only for sphincter preservation, but also for predicting who's going to do well and not. Now, how we use that information is something different. We just simply looked at a large cadre of patients to see whether our protocol patients looked any different from people who were not in the ECOG study, but elected to get oxaliplatin in a similar manner. And the answer is no, they looked exactly the same.
2: And what was the exact regimen?
1: The exact regimen was 50 milligrams per meter squared of oxaliplatin weekly. Originally, in the ECOG trial, we did 85 every other week. CALGB did a weekly regimen. I think your MTD was 60 That's right. in a week. Most studies in Europe and America, it ranges from 50 to 60 per week. And we elected to revert to the weekly regimen just because it makes more sense from a radiosensitization standpoint to have it there more frequently rather than less
2: And of course, Charlie, the NSABP and the RO4 study is not only comparing 5-FU to capecitabine, which is another thought I wanted to see what you think about in this situation, but also plus or minus oxaliplatin. MD Anderson has a trial looking at capecitabine, oxaliplatin, and bevacizumab in a trial setting. What about capecitabine as well as bevacizumab in a non-protocol setting for somebody like this, Charlie?
3: The uncontrolled data of using capecitabine as a radiation sensitizer in this setting looks comparable to using infusional 5-FU. And I know a number of people have been sufficiently persuaded to think that the jury's in. I still think that a randomized trial, making that comparison is critical. I think we really need to prove that capecitabine is equivalent to infusional 5-FU. And I think it's really essential, although the NSVP is doing that, because of the data that Dan points out, they obviously expanded the study from simply being a CAPE versus 5-FU study to obviously the 2x2 with oxaliplatin. How about Bev? I think it's a great idea to look at. I agree with Dan that is the value of bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting, I think, obviously remains to be proven, although potentially with a rectal tumor in place, maybe the value of bevacizumab be clearer. We did, at our center, a very small study looking at bevacizumab in rectal cancer patients where the primary was still in place, and we did see the appropriate biologic effects in terms of reducing interstitial pressure, presumably improving drug delivery, potentially improving radiation sensitization with bevacizumab. But obviously, there was a very small study published in Nature Medicine.
2: That was Chris Willett, and that's the most often quoted 10-patient or whatever study I've ever seen. It's a fascinating study, fascinating pictures. Anything new in that data set?
3: I think the data continue to hold out. They remain consistent. The study enrolled probably another 10 patients. The results look fairly similar, and, and I think other physiologic effects that have been studied to date, continue to demonstrate there probably is some physiologic effect of bevacizumab on these tumors, but ultimately, does it improve patient outcome, that's going to require a randomized trial.
2: So, Dan, for practical purposes, in what situations are you using oxaliplatin, neoagent, rectal cancer, off-protocol?
1: We use it not as a standard of care, but we clearly do present a positive picture of it. And just ironically, the day I left, we put our first patient on a clinical trial that has taken two and a half years to get through the IRB. And it tells you a little bit of the evolution of our concepts of rectal cancer. Because in this trial, people get CAPOX or Zelox plus cetuximab without radiation for two cycles. Dave Cunningham's group in Chow showed that you could do this and not lose patients, tumor shrank. And in our institution, at least, as I'm sure it's not true at Harvard, But at our institution, it will frequently take two or three weeks to get a patient set up and into their first radiation treatment. We actually saw the patient, enrolled them, put a port in that day and started treatment the next day. So you can get started on the chemotherapy. And if you think of it, it's a little bit like treating breast cancer and adjuvant therapy where you're thinking of the disease as a systemic treatment and you're getting most of your adjuvant therapy now before they even see the surgeon. So they'll get two cycles of Cape cytabine, oxaliplatin, cetoximab. And we have two phase one studies from Europe, thank God, at ASCO this year that showed that there was no worse skin toxicity with radiation and cetoximab. So we were happy about that. And then they'll be rescoped, and tissues will be sent to Heinz Lenz to look at what changes took place within the tumor. Then they'll get capecitabine, oxaliplatin, and cetoximab, which was shown in the core trial to be a very tolerable treatment. And then they will get Surgery about eight weeks after they last chemoradiotherapy, so they will have gotten about four months of adjuvant chemotherapy with essentially a standard of care, which is a fluoropyrimidine plus oxaliplatin before their surgery.
3: We're actually doing something very similar. Our radiation oncologists have the same problem of getting patients started, and in fact, the bevacizumab study that Chris did allowed just bevacizumab alone to study. We're doing the same thing with cetuximab, that is. We're giving three weekly doses of just cetuximab in an effort to see what
0: that drug does
3: pre and post to these tumors.
2: Let's follow up with what happened with this patient.
0: Yes. At that time, we didn't have our O4 study opened. I sent the patient down to the University of Miami because you are absolutely right. The surgeon is so important, especially to treat this person off study. And I have not really done it before off the study. We looked at the literature, and we decided to treat him with chemotherapy up front. We were very concerned about systemic disease. I mean, these nodes looked really ugly. We gave him oxaliplatin and capecitabine for three cycles. His pet before was negative, except indirectum. Then we repeated the indirectal ultrasound, and there was marked improvement. These nodes, obviously, were still there, but they are way smaller than they were. And the mass, there was some abnormality still there, and... For whatever reason, nobody biopsied it, but there was still some abnormality in the rectum. At that time, we started him on a combination of chemotherapy with capecitabine alone, 850 milligram per meter square PID during the days of radiation and radiation therapy. He received 45 gray in 25 daily fractions, plus 10 gray in five sessions covering the tumor site. He developed some grade 2 mucositis and diarrhea towards the end of the treatment, After we finished the radiotherapy and the capecitabine, four weeks later, he underwent surgery. And he actually went down to the University of Miami, underwent the resection of the tumor. The pathology showed no residual cancer in the rectal specimen, and a total of nine nodes were removed, all negative for adenocarcinoma by light microscopy. So what would you do at this point, Charlie?
3: My attitude is once you've committed to neoadjuvant therapy, you're committed to postoperative therapy. And I tell patients, no matter what happens, including a PATH-CR that I feel compelled that they would get post-operative therapy just because that's what our studies that show the benefit to these regimens included.
1: Another misinterpretation of the German trial is because this patient, from a prognostic standpoint, should do well because they were downstage to a path CR. They did well, but that doesn't predict what you should do after surgery. Two comments. Four weeks is short. Many colorectal surgeons think four weeks is too short, especially sphincter preservation is an issue. Ours usually push it out to six to eight even. So four is a little on the short side if you're expecting maximal downstaging. And this person obviously had a very sensitive tumor. But in the German trial, everybody got postoperative therapy. So you can't dissect out how you delete part of a regimen. Frankly, once you've done all the rest of it, I'm not sure that the additional X months of chemotherapy are that much added burden to a patient, frankly. And so I'm pretty hard-lined about this one with most people.
2: So specifically,
1: what do you think you'd recommend? I would probably continue a 5-FU combination. That's the standard in the intergroup trial, and it's the same question colon cancer. It's post-surgical Folfox plus or minus bevacizumab. So how many cycles? I tell people to think about six months of therapy. So if this person had two months Then two months during radiation, probably another four to six cycles would be about right. It sounds like a recipe, but we're making things up a little bit based on the emergence of new data.
0: So what did you do, or what are you doing? This patient drove his care. He will get his appointments. You are absolutely right. I mean, he wanted to have the surgery. He took care of everything. We decided definitely to give him chemotherapy. And since he responded so well to what he received before, he received the same treatment for four more months. He is now 3 months since the end of the treatment his PET scan is negative and CA normal and he is referred for our genetic program for genetic testing he wanted to do that.
2: Any neuropathy?
0: He developed grade 1 at one point and I had no doubt in my mind he underestimated the side effects because this guy wanted really to be cured but nothing that could interfere according to him with his daily activities.
2: And how's his current bowel function?
0: His bowel function, I just saw him around two to three weeks ago. He still has some issues and some discomfort and some pain, but I think he's doing well. I always worry about leaks and all these things.
1: Yeah. I think that's a very important point, Neil. When we, as Americans, typically did post-operative radiation therapy, we always looked at survival data, but we didn't look much at quality of life. And then Cole Morgan from the Mayo Clinic in the late 1980s, did a phone survey four years out from low anterior resection patients for those who only had surgery and those who had postoperative chemoradiation. And the people who had chemoradiation, because they needed it, they were of a certain stage, had double the number of daily bowel movements. Fifty percent of them had nocturnal bowel movements. Fifty percent of them, four years later, were still wearing some sort of diaper Appliance, either a little pad or something. So I think we don't think about this much. And sometimes when we say to a patient four years out, how are your bowels? They say fine, because they don't remember what it used to be like five years ago. So I think especially in the studies involving the new agents, I think we have to be careful about making sure that we collect four- and five-year data for sphincter quality of life, because if we preserve a non-functional sphincter, we haven't done the patient a favor at all, and I think particularly in regard to any of the VEGF drugs, which are by nature vascular toxins to some degree, and radiation is a vascular toxin. And you know the patient, when you say to them, you may be having adhesions from your radiation, they said, well, that's impossible. It's four years out. Yeah, that's exactly when it hits. There's an acute event, but there's also the elate effect. So it's our responsibility not only to do more, but to look better later.
3: I think it's a great point, Dan, because obviously we have a number of outstanding surgeons who are now pushing the envelope in terms of doing sphincter-sparing surgeries with relatively low-lying lesions. And I think it's really critical that we look at quality of life for those patients because, as you probably experienced as well with your patient, some of these folks really do have a tough time, particularly with nocturnal bowel movements.
2: What do we know about the variation in quality of rectal surgery across this country in terms of particularly who's operating on these patients? Again, these surgeons I interviewed for our series often talk about second opinions coming to them, told they are going to need an AP resection, and they get neoadjuvant therapy, don't get it. What do we know, Dan, about what's going on right now in this country?
1: high degree of variability compared with most other places in the world where they have more control over who does what surgery. Bruce Minsky showed a slide two years ago at ASCO, and I stole it from him, and I use it a lot. And what it did was compare the five-year outcomes across different 3A, B, and C disease based on both the clinical trial data and the National Cancer Database data, which is, by definition, community-based, this is what's happening across the country perspective, In each stage grouping, there was a 20% worse five-year survival in the NCDB database. And I think that's a very strong implication that comes from the more specific studies looking at hospital volume, where if you're not doing more than 10 cases a year in most diseases, you probably shouldn't be doing it at all. Charlie?
3: And akin to what you described earlier, we looked in the last CLGB rectal study at hospital volume, and it was highly predictive for colostomy-free survival. That is a very strong linear effect. The more the volume for procedures, the lower rates of colostomies. Dan?
1: For Dr. Sain, just a question. When you came to him with the good news that there was no tumor, did he say, then why did I have surgery? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And how did you wiggle out of that one?
0: Yeah, it is that, you know, we could have done biopsies, but we could have missed it. It could have been next. What about the nodes? You are absolutely right. It's the same thing like with breast cancer. When we give neoadjuvant and the pathologic CR is like 30, 40 percent, and these women tell us or node positive or margin positive, and then they have a mastectomy, tell me you had me remove my breast. It's the same thing, but I don't really have a lot of experience with preservation except. Trust me, even when you have a lot
1: like we do, I think. We still don't have the right answer. I think the real question is, when will surgery become an adjunct to chemoradiotherapy, if you will? And even our surgeons buy into that one, is that there are probably a group of patients where if we were a little bit more confident on our pretreatment staging, a person had a bare T3 lesion, you were convinced the nodes are negative, if you really downstage them enough, could you simply excise the area and not do a complete, if an LAR is going to be done, so be it. But we're talking about the sphincter preservation. I think we're getting to that. I honestly do. Any imaging techniques or other
2: diagnostic techniques that might be helpful in that regard?
1: There are a number of them. There are better MRI techniques that are coming out, as well as better ultrasonography techniques. And there's a very nice article I'll put a plug in for this month's review issue of the JCO, specifically dedicated toward the proper use of radiology in oncology, with some wonderful articles on the use and misuse of PET and how not to use radiographic tools for screening in most cancers, but particularly in GI tract tumors.
2: Bill?